This great epistle that the Apostle John wrote as a very old man, and that's why he starts out this chapter, chapter 2, with my little children. It's an affectionate letter, it's a loving letter. He's considering this church that he's helped to pastor in his old age, his children, those that he loves, those that he wants to see become like their older brother, Jesus. And of course, in some measure, like their older brother, John. We're going to read uh, the, the section tonight, and it'll just bear reminding us that this, this is a letter written in the, in the uh, uh, really is a postscript to a, to a huge church, to a, uh, 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 the, the, in the wake of what was a false teacher in the first century by the name of Serenthus. We've covered, you can go back to our first sermon in the series to um, uh, uh, hear more of the historical setting that this letter is written into. But, but, but this false teaching Serenthus, who had started to propagate what was called the Gnostic heresy, was really teaching that the flesh is evil, spirit is good, uh, Jesus didn't come in the flesh because that would make him evil. Instead, he was sort of a ghostly figure that looked like he was in the flesh. He didn't really die for our sins and rise again. There's not even such thing as sin anymore because, uh, you know, your body doesn't matter. Your body is just flesh. It's your spirit that matters. So cultivate the spirit through chants, meditations, and all that sort of stuff. But you do whatever you want with your flesh. You just do whatever you want in your body with other people. It doesn't matter. It, it's the flesh. And then there had arisen this teaching, a, a following had occurred of this false teacher, and the church was, was ruptured. We will read later on in chapter 2 that they had had to, that the true children of God had had to stand up and defend doctrine and, and stand firm on the truth, and they had seen many of their loved ones leave. And, and now the church, John's little children, new Christians, old Christians, in this mega city of Ephesus, are struggling over the pain of that. How should we think? I mean, how do we know who the true children of God are? How do we know who's really in the right and who's in the wrong? Did we, did we kick them out of this place standing on the right foundations of the gospel? And John, the apostle of love and the apostle of thunder, wrote in to console them and remind them, you did the right thing. Let me remind you of the age-old, never-changing gospel that you were right to stand on and that you need to be encouraged in. All throughout, as he's writing, it's not just that he's recapping a, an event. He's consoling hearts. He's leading Christians into how we should think of our sin and our glorious Savior. So I'm going to read chapter 2 now, only the first six verses, and we will begin our exposition. It reads like this. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is being perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walks. May God bless to us the reading and exposition of his authoritative word this evening. Nah, that wasn't good enough. May God bless his word among us, the word-hungry people, this evening. Amen. That's better, that's better. 
Tonight we're going to see the perfect obedience and the imperfect obedience. We're going to be looking at Jesus and we'll take some time looking at ourselves. John Newton uh, used to say that you should, for every 10,000 looks that you look at yourself, that was so wrong, let me start again. I'm just not in the rut yet tonight. He used to say that for every look you look within at yourself, take 10,000 looks towards Christ. As much as you are, and you are, if you're a Christian, new Christian, maybe, maybe on the verge of conversion, or you're looking back over your life with, with doubts about your true regeneration, you're going to start looking within yourself and seeing plenty of evidence to condemn you. You're going to see plenty of indwelling sin, and if you're just measuring yourself up against God's perfect holy light, you're going to see a very dark heart, no matter how mature you are in the faith. No matter how far you've progressed, you have enough sin in you that if you bear it against the law, it could condemn you. Therefore, he would say, as much as you look within, take 10,000 looks to Jesus. So we'll be doing that tonight. We're going to look at Jesus and his perfect, finished obedience. And then we're going to look at ourselves and consider our continual, unfinished, imperfect obedience. Both of them necessary for the Christian life. Let's first look at how we ought to be resting on the perfect obedience of Jesus. John starts out by saying, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is the heart of a pastor. This is the heart of a friend, a a sister, a brother, an apostle. If they love you, they desire that you not sin. Anybody who's walked in sin long enough, who who reads the Word of God long enough, knows that sin leads to pain. Sin sin leads to a kind of living death within us. It leads to lack of joy, lack of peace, lack of what Paul, uh, John has already said, lack of fellowship with God and with others. Nobody who loves you wants you to walk in sin with them, but John loves them. He's the apostle of love, and he wants you, he wants us, I want us to not sin. But, he says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When you sin, Spurgeon said, commenting on this case, when you sin, you need help. And in Jesus, you have all the help you need. If you're a Christian who, or wondering about your Christianity, but if you're here tonight and you know that you are are frequent in your failures and your sins and you frequently need help and you're constantly needing to, to think about the sin that you find in your heart and in your life, guys, welcome to the age-old family. The Christian family of throughout all ages has been a body of people imperfect, needing forgiveness continually, always requiring, as we saw last week, the blood of Jesus to anew every week, every day, every moment we stop to confess our sin to the Lord. We need continual cleansing and growth. You are at home among like-minded, like people, if you are in constant need of repentance and conviction and confession to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says here, he says basically what his uh, 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 namesake in, in the book of John, uh, but it was John the Baptist. I'm just going to confuse it tonight. John the Apostle wrote this book. He also wrote the other book, the Gospel. And in that book, he talks about John the Baptist. And he said, as Jesus came waltzing through the desert, Behold, look, look away from me. Put your eyes to Jesus. That is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John's stolen a a page out of John the Reformed Baptist's book. And he goes, guys, if you have sin, if anyone does sin, 
Behold Jesus Christ. He paints this picture of him in three main ways. We're going to see that he calls him Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's one, the righteous. Then he calls him propitiation. And then he says that he is our advocate. In fact, it's, in, it's entirely the other way around. Advocate and then righteous and then propitiation. We're going to look at each of those, but we're going to do it, hence my confusion, in opposite order. We're going to start with propitiation. Then see what it means for Jesus to be righteous. And then see what it means that he calls him our advocate. John here calls Jesus his, his friend who he loved throughout his life. And now his ascended Lord and God at the right hand of the Father. He says that we have Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate. He is the propitiation for our sins. I don't know what version you're reading out of. It might say, if it's basically anything other than the ESV, it might say a sacrifice of atonement in your translation. You have my permission to mark that out and write in with thick black ink, propitiation. I know that that's a large word that the translators had sort of tried to get rid of because it's, it's chunky and it's theological and it's hard to understand, but isn't it good that God gave the church teachers? You go, oh, come on, make me feel better than that. Aren't you glad that, the, that God gave the church teachers so that we see things and go, huh, what's that? We just make up other words. We explain it, propitiation. In the English, it comes to mean uh, to turn away somebody's wrath. To be propitious, it's not a word we use anymore, but to be propitious is to be favorable, charitable, loving, pleasant towards somebody. You can be propitious towards somebody that you're happy with, and the opposite would be a, a burning anger. But to be propitious is to be satisfied, pleased with somebody. And this is what Jesus is, according to John. He is the one who went forward and made somehow between a holy God who deserves to, to kill us for our sin. A God who, if he did just bare naked justice in a moment, we'd all be thrown into hellfire. The, the most holy ones, the most sinful people, the least converted, the most Christian. If God just poured out justice outside of Jesus, we should all go to hell for eternity. And yet, somehow, Jesus and his coming and his being the Lamb of God and his propitiation, he made God favorable towards us. Loving towards us joyful, pleased, and smiling towards us in and through his son. The Greek word hilasmos, or the other version of the word hilasterion, is, is really how we get this word propitiation. Its, uh, its meaning is, like we said, to be removal of wrath, but that is to be distinct from, maybe your translation is one of the extra bad ones that puts in about 10 words in there and says expiating sacrifice of atonement. This is a large confusion, an important confusion to clarify so that we're clear on the gospel. Propitiation and expiation are words I'll, I'll explain and have done in the past, but we'll bring it anew to our minds tonight so that we can see the distinction and the importance of this distinction. Propitiation is God-focused. Can I just say that I don't like a lot of how people uh, offer salvation and, and preach the gospel to people these days. I, I don't like that they say, Jesus made the sacrifice and he offers it out to you. Will, will you take his sacrifice? Friends, the sacrifice wasn't to you. It wasn't to anybody else. The sacrifice was to the father, the offended party. It's, it's him that can accept or reject Jesus Christ sacrifice. And, and we know that in the resurrection, he showed, he proved that he did accept Jesus' sacrifice. But, but propitiation is speaking to that God-centered part of the atonement on the cross. 
that when Jesus went forward, he was carrying our sin. And he went before the Lord and dealt with that sin in such a way that God is now able to be joyful, pleasant, propitious towards us. Jesus, on the cross, drank to its dregs the cup of the wrath of God that we see pictured throughout the prophets. This, this picture of God's anger over a people, that, that he's going to come on this murderous, raping, barbaric city and, and punish them, the prophets say. And, and what he says is, I will make them drink the cup of my wrath. I'm going I'm to hold them in place until they have finished drinking the most sour, bitter cup of wine down to its last drops and dregs. And it's, it's a kind of a picture that you drink that in and it destroys you in God's judgment. What did Jesus say when he was praying in the garden just before he went and died? He prayed to the Father and said, Lord, if this cup can pass me, if that is your will, then please let this cup pass by. He was looking there into this deep well of wrath, and he desired anything but to drink it. But he did not hold back. And on the cross, he drank to its dregs the cup of the wrath of of God. Expiation, however, is that, is that element of the atonement that is about us and our sin. Jesus went before the Father. He made him propitious by satisfying his wrath, by dying for our sin, paying the payment that a holy God demanded. And therefore, over us, God can expiate, or that word means remove off of. God can consider you as clean. He can strip away your title of sinner. He can make you righteous before the judge. He can, he can declare over to you righteous, forgiven, clean, because Jesus has propitiated the Father. There's, for those in Jesus Christ, there's not a single sin that is unpaid for. Therefore, there's not a single drop of wrath of God that we have to face and suffer and drink. Jesus, by his propitiation, satisfied the Father's wrath. In fact, the, the triune God's wrath being poured out by the Father. And he has made us able to be expiated through his blood atonement. It was the same word, this word propitiation, hilasterion, or the Hebrew equivalent. It was the same word that was spoken of the mercy seat. The lid of the Ark of the Covenant that was in the holy place in the temple where once a year, one man would go with the blood of the animals and sprinkle it over the table as if to say, God is above, we are beneath, but between us there is the blood of the sacrifice. God, be patient with us. Do not pour out your punishment on us. There has been the blood of an atoning sacrifice. But that lamb and those bulls, those animals, were never able to take away sin. Hundreds of years had caked blood thick on top of that lid and not a single drop had taken away a single sin of a single sinner. But with one sacrifice for all time, Jesus went into the holy place, offered up his life, shed his blood, and in those righteous veins flowed our salvation onto the altar of God. What was achieved on the mercy seat was propitiation. This is also where we understand imputation, but we will get there in just a moment. I remember years ago, uh, five, five years ago or so, I had a, a, a large debt that I was seeking to pay off. It was just sort of the ones that I'd gotten a loan, I was paying things off, and I had sort of logged in on this online uh, uh, module to find my quarterly invoice. You know, the, 
what an invoice is, right? Uh, an invoice is, is a bill, a, a, a here's what you have left to pay statement. An invoice you'll get from your phone provider, your, your electricity bills or the like. An invoice tells you what is due. I logged in that day to download my invoice and I found a receipt. You know the difference between an invoice and a receipt, right? A receipt comes saying everything's paid for. Somebody had, for my sake, uh, paid the rest of my loan that I was going to take a few years to pay off. A, a family friend, somebody close to me had made the payment. And when I went in to expect an invoice, here's what's left to pay. I went in and found a declaration. It is paid for. Friends, when you and I go into the throne of God and we, we picture ourselves walking through the temple and, and approaching to the, the mercy seat of God and the, the first curtain we walk through and the second curtain is about uh, is before us and we we slowly walk up those steps and and peer in and we see the the ark of the covenant where the blood was shed and we look you don't find an invoice you find the receipt of god's own son jesus saying paid we no longer have to sin did you did you hear what john said he says when you sin you go to god penitently and you ask what you owe he didn't say that. We're not worshipping in the temple under bloods of bulls and goats anymore. You don't come to the priest and ask what you owe. You come to the priest and he reminds you, taking you by the hands and says, Child, my little child, it's paid for. Go and sin no more. Jesus has propitiated the wrath of God by becoming for us sin on the cross and receiving in his body the full punishment that billions of sinners should have received. This is our propitiation. He was, he was able to make that atonement. Let's look at the, the next statement that he says. Well, the, actually, the, the one before that. He is the propitiation for our sins, but before that he calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. Those two are so intertwined. Jesus had to be righteous to be able to go in and make atonement. If, if he had his own sin, if in his life he had lusted, he had lied, he had stolen, he had coveted somebody else's goods, if he had done that, then when he went before the Father on the cross, he wouldn't have had a blank slate to receive other people's sins. He would have had to go in and had his own infinite payment to pay off, at the end of which, for there is no end, he would never have been able to pay for hours. A righteous perfectly righteous man had to make payment for other people. Only somebody with something in their account can cover your debt. If I've got a debt of a hundred grand, somebody comes up, oh, and you a hundred bucks, I can't just walk up to you and decide, throw it on my bill. You know, chuck it on my tab. I, I don't mind. That's fine for me. That's fine for the person. It's not okay for you. You don't get payment. And the father was not willing to accept payment at somebody else's hand who already owed him a debt, but he received our payment from Jesus, who had enough righteousness in his account to cover every sinner that comes. He was perfectly righteous. And this is where we get into the idea of imputation. Can't we ask, and if you, you know that old declaration from God himself, who says, I will never clear a guilty person, and it's unrighteous to punish an innocent person. So we can ask of God, if you can't punish the innocent and you can't clear the guilty, what are you doing to Jesus, and how dare you forgive sinners? Let me say this. God doesn't clear and receive into heaven guilty people. And he never punished an innocent man on the cross. 
So real is this notion of imputation or reckoning or transfer of guilt and status that God no longer looked at Jesus on the cross as a perfect man, for he was not. He was really and truly imputed, reckoned with, and therefore treated as sin. And friends, you and I, we do not just have a status before God where he winks and says, I know you're still guilty. I know you still owe a debt of justice to the law, but I'll treat you like an innocent person. He doesn't do that. So real and true was the transfer of Christ's righteousness to our legal account that God, in, with open eyes and with every sense, he can say, you, before me, because of Jesus' blood, you are righteous. You are as righteous as Jesus is righteous. Therefore, I love you with the self-same love that I love my son. Justification. Or another version of the word could be righteousification, where God makes you righteous, not by making your life perfect, but by changing something above you. He's changing things on the paperwork. He's changing things in the courtroom. He hasn't changed your life to be perfect yet. We know that's not the basis of your justification. The basis of your justification where God declares you righteous is what Jesus has done for you, outside of you. Extra nos, Martin Luther would say. An alien righteousness from outside of you has been applied to you into your account. This is good news. Jesus is the righteous one, as opposed to us. You know why he's using that phrase there? Because he's counseling unrighteous, sinful Christians who are struggling. And he says, you know there is a righteous one. I know you're not righteous. God hasn't given up all his standards but there is a righteous one. The righteousness that had to be achieved has been achieved and he's in your corner. Jesus Christ, the righteous, made propitiation for us. And therefore he is our advocate. Our advocate. We have an advocate with the Father. Because this word advocate really means like a legal defense. You can imagine somebody being in court and what do they do for you, their clients? They plead your case. Jesus Christ is both the case and the judge and the advocate pleading your case. He's not pleading what you've done. Don't worry that Jesus with his all-seeing eye is going to pick up your history, your record of sin and righteousness this week and say, no, Father, forgive them because, oh, no, I, I sorry, I'm now I'm reading this information for the first time. Uh, in fact, they're guilty. That's not what our advocate does. Our advocate, knowing the covenant between father and son, knowing the promise of transfer that he made in the gospel, Jesus, while we are accused and, and the law makes us convicted and, and brings us to the, to the throne of God, where, which is called the throne of grace, Jesus Christ places his hands upon us and says, I plead my own blood. I plead my case in their stead. I plead my righteousness as being theirs. He pleads the blood, not as if. Well, look at this. He says, we have an advocate with the Father, not against the Father. It's not as if we should have this idea of the Trinity where God's just so angry, he's the Father, he wished he could smack you, but his son sort of got in the way, found a loophole, and now you're saved. But every time you see him, the father's getting off his couch, throwing the remote down, putting down his six-pack, and he's going to take a swing. 
So how we should view the, view the father as some vindictive, angry father who is only regrettably saving us because of Jesus. We have an advocate with the father. He's, he's so, the, the theological word here is, is, is perichoresis. The, the, the inward nature of, 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 the, of the members of the Trinity, that they, are, they, they indwell one another in a non-spatial way. And we can think of this with the covenant. It's not as if Jesus is pleading and asking and begging the Father that he would not destroy us, but that he is in a perpetual way, always and ever, before the Father with the emblems of his suffering, as a constant emblem, not, not, not a begging, but, but an emblem of the forgiveness that has been achieved for us. Jesus Christ in heaven at God's right hand is the continual symbol of a finished atonement. Jesus is pleading the covenant that the Father had made to the Son, where the Father had said to him, if you go, we read this in Isaiah 53, if you go and you bear their sin and you are counted among the transgressors, you will make many righteous people out of sinners. You will bring many sons to glory. I, I promise you for your sake and in your stead, I will receive these sinners who have come in the name of Jesus Christ. He pleads the blood of the eternal covenant which rose Jesus up. Don't you love this? That It doesn't say, when you don't sin. John doesn't say, I write this to you so that you may not sin. Because, here's the motivator. When you don't sin, you have an advocate. Isn't that how human courts work? If you're not truly guilty, you can get an advocate. Your lawyer can, well, you can get a lawyer if you're guilty as well, but, but in God's court, wouldn't we think that he'll only be telling the truth? He won't be defending a guilty person. Therefore, if you don't sin, the motivation is you'll have an advocate. But if you sin, Christian, well, you don't want to face a wrathful God on your own. No, it's precisely the opposite way that we tend to think. He says, do not sin. And when you do sin, you have an advocate. In fact, there's a way we could say this, that you don't have an advocate unless you are a sinner. Unless you come with, with guilty hands and, and an imperfect heart, you don't have Jesus. One commentator said, people want to deny their own sinfulness and best of luck to them. They can do it their own way. But we who recognize our sin, we will lean wholeheartedly on the blood of Jesus, our advocate. He alone is able to save. And so we sing, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be of sin. The double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold, the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Filthy I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Nothing, either great or small. Nothing, sinner. No. Jesus died to pay it all ever long ago. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done ever long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing, but by his work we're saved. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my pardon, this I see. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this is my plea. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Behold the God-man crucified, the perfect sinless sacrifice. As blood ran down those nails in wood, history was split in two. Yes, history was split in two. Behold the empty wooden tree, his body gone, alive and free. We sing with everlasting joy, for sin and death have been destroyed. For sin and death have been destroyed. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a saviour. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath his covenant, his blood, support me in the overwhelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's why we sing. That's what we sing, because Jesus Christ is our righteous one our advocate, the propitiation of God's wrath. John points us to look on Jesus because he's going to mention our walk and our sin, and I can do no different. We have to focus on Jesus and his finished work because that is the only grounds from which you can live a holy life. A lot of dirt is kicked up and ink is spilled and uh, keyboards are bashed in and in arguments around this, this uh, verse 2 when he says that he is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only but also the sins of the whole world. Uh, uh, part of our bedrock theology here at Hope is of course Reformed theology, Calvinistic theology that believes that uh, God the Father chose all that would be saved before time. That uh, uh, Jesus uh, came down into time to pay the price for those chosen ones. No more, no less, but pay for those people. That's called limited atonement. That there is a limited number of people justified at the cross. And then the Holy Spirit comes and makes all of us who Jesus died for, who the Father chose, alive in real time. 
And then there's this verse, right? This is the classic anti-Calvinistic verse. Jesus, it says, died for not just the chosen ones, but for everybody. Well, that can't possibly be what it means if the word propitiation means propitiation. If Jesus is the propitiation for all the world, and world means everyone who has ever lived or will ever live, then there's no such thing as anybody in hell, for hell is the place of God's wrath, and all that wrath was propitiated. What we need to do is honest exegesis and ask which question, sorry, which word here might not mean what we assume it to mean. Well, we, we have propitiation. It means what propitiation means, but the words ours and world is what we have to look at. Well, what does he mean when he says our sins and sins of the world? Because Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, he says right here, not, our, not ours only. And what John is encouraging them with is not only for you, is the well of Christ's grace infinitely deep, but it can overflow and extend to anyone else, to everybody who will come and place their faith in Jesus. For, in fact, people out of the whole world, not everybody without exception, but anybody without distinction, that any can come for the blood of Jesus. You might think if somebody was to come and pay every one of your debts, you may assume they're probably shortchanged. The line who's lining up for, for, for full clearance for them to pay for, the line can't be that long. You can't be that generous and that rich at the end of the day. Well, Jesus says, let the line be infinitely long. My blood can cleanse any. John is reminding us he's the propitiation for your sins and for any that you might leave this church and preach the gospel to. Jesus may save them also. Friends, there's Jesus' perfect obedience. There's a perfect finished righteousness there in verses 1 and 2. And then we, we look towards us in verse 3 to 6, where John says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This has to be, I'm, I've made this case before, but I'll do it again, this has to refer to, by nature, imperfect obedience. When it says that those who know God are walking in his laws, those who have come to know him are, are, are keeping his commandments, he has to mean there imperfectly. I know that John uses language that is not always strictly black and white or that is too black and white and makes us sort of jolt and think, oh, geez, even as this, since the beginning of this sermon, I've not kept every one of the commandments. John has to mean imperfectly because... He's, he's talking not so much to a, we have to remember the context, he's not talking to a Christian who's crying in their car, wondering about the, the legitimacy of their salvation. He's not talking to an anxious Christian who is highly stressed. He's not talking to a Christian who has noticed weakness in their life and feels so convicted for their sin. No, he's talking to the situation of those who say they really know God, therefore don't need these commandments they really know God, therefore can live however they wish. That they're sort of elevated above the need of the word of God. They're so spiritual. You little children need the word. We have direct conversation with almighty God and therefore we don't need so much the commandments. There's the distinction. That's what he's writing to. He's not meaning perfection versus imperfection. If you're imperfect, you have no, you do not know Jesus. And, and we can prove this with verse 1 and 2. 
Right? What if you read that, verse 3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And you say, ouch. What do I do if I haven't kept all of his commandments? Aren't you glad verse 1 and 2 was written? If anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sin. Should I preach that again? Should I preach that every time that Paul, John here says something about not keeping his commandments perfectly? He has to mean imperfect obedience. That's the only kind of obedience that humans can provide. So maybe on the other side, we're not saying, oh, geez, I always break the commandments. What if we go the other way and say, oh, lucky for me, I actually don't do that anymore. I've, sin is sort of a thing of the past, like puberty. It happened, but here I am, all mature and spiritual myself, no more sin. Well, then you go to chapter 1, verse 8, which said, if we have... If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the, the very narrow road that John has knocked the left way off and knocked the right way off and the only path before us is those who are sinning Christians ought to make laboring, intensive, desiring, zealous attempts to walk according to the word and commandments of Jesus Christ. If we claim to have and know Jesus as our advocate, then we will and must live as he has commanded. I, I love the uh, autobiography of um, uh, Murray McShane. He was a Scottish um, uh, Presbyter Presbyterian minister in um, the 1800s. And, and he came as a, a very young man to this church. And he recognized that I'm young and I know my theology and... This is a church that I'm just getting to know, and they're very imperfect, and I seek to grow them. I, I want them to not sin. I want them to be more holy. And he said he set about, for about the first 10 years of his ministry, he would labor the laws and the commandments of God, showing them that if you claim to be a Christian, you ought to be following the commandments. And he found very little progress. And he wrote in his autobiography and said, but when I realized that what they needed above everything else is the soul-saving grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, proclaimed publicly, reminded to them every single chance I could get, I found in them a holiness I could not imagine before, even about things I would not preach about. The secret to a holy people is showing them the grace that is theirs. How, how backwards this is, that we think if you want your people to stay away from sin, don't let them know that they'll never have to pay for that sin. Keep them, keep them afraid. Keep reminding them of the law, but not John, not Peter, not Paul, not Jesus. They say, come and feast, you hungry sinners. Come and receive free mercy, because we are in those two camps. You are in a camp at the moment where you have started to think or feel about yourself. I'm, I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm scared by these commandments that are the high demands of a Christian, living the commandments, walking in the word, following the rules. And I look at myself and realize how far short I have fallen. What you need is a reminder that Jesus Christ is your propitiation and he's an advocate knowing full well that you are still a struggling sinner. 
but others are on the other side. And we've started to, maybe we've, we've walked these commandments a bit. We gave it a try. We had an attempt, but thank you very much. It wasn't for me. I didn't receive joy. It was strenuous. I kept on trying to earn my way in and keep, kept on you know, white-knuckling it, working my fingers down to the bone. And, and I just kept feeling guilty. So I'm actually checking out of Christianity. Or I'm going to start taking a break from the laws of God. I don't need to be at church as often as those other people. I'll just take a back seat to Christianity a while and hope at the end there's still sort of room to jump in under the door of heaven as it's closing. Maybe you're in one of those two camps. And to you both, you need to know. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for your sin. You don't have to worry about not not being perfect enough. Focus. Look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remind yourself of the perfect finished work of Jesus and whether you realize it or not, you will find yourself walking forwards to that thing which you adore. If you're on your learners right now and you're in the the practice of having your mother scream in your face as you go one kilometer over the speed limit, if that's you, you hit one curb and your dad is banning you from his car for life, if that's you, you've gone through that experience. Where was I going with this? Learners, I've truly, I got, I got caught up in the PTSD of driving uh, uh, as, a, as a learner, and I'm sure I was going somewhere with it. I'm going to go back to the text. <laughs> there you go. God didn't want it done, uh, but bless you if, you if you're on your learners right now. <clears throat> Did it just come to me? It's not in the notes, uh, mate. You know, Holy Spirit said no. <clears throat> Verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly, the love of God is perfected. What this shows us is, is really, it starts giving us a few definitions of what it is to live as a Christian. Look at the different ways that, that uh, John talks about it. He says, <clears throat> uh, uh, first of all, he calls it in verse 3, keeping his commandments. That's what the Christian righteous life, though imperfect, ought to be characterized by keeping his commandments. That is, for those, just cheat, cheat sheet now, 10 commandments and all the imperative commandments that you find in the New Testament, they're for Christians. Seeking to obey them and live by them, not for obedience, but for uh, holiness, that is your law. That is what righteousness is for us. So we should be keeping his commandments. Or in verse 4, he calls it keeping his word. Uh, And then uh, there in verse uh, 5, he calls it abiding in him. All these words mean knowing, believing, trusting, and obeying the words of Jesus through the word of God, the Bible. The word abide here comes up, same author, same church, in 2 John verse 9. And he says to them, very similar language, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. It's a stay with the group kind of language that he's using. I don't know if you've read John 15 about abiding with Christ and you've heard sermons or you've met Christians and really what abide means for them is deep meditation for hours with loud music and that's, that's basically what it means is spend time in prayer. Now, now spending time in devoted prayer will be a part of abiding but that is not what it means. Abiding means what John just defined it as there. 
not moving ahead or dragging behind of what Jesus has said. His words and his teachings. Again, Second John said, let me read it again. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ. So this is what John means when he says uh, living a Christian life, or as he will say in verse 6, walking in the same way that Jesus walked, this is what it looks like. Knowing, believing, trusting, and obeying the word of Jesus. Abiding in the teaching and the word of Jesus. Friends, we can, we can wrap up here by simply remembering the two sections here. Go and read this again and again and again in your times of need. If you're, if you're struggling on one side, I remember where I was going with the analogy. Just came back to me. Remember here, put your eyes on and focus on Jesus in this passage. When you're a learner driver and your mum tells you, I'm so glad I remembered this, she'll tell you and remind you, whatever you look at is where you will go. You know, if, if you see somebody else in the other lane, she'll say, don't just crack your neck and look at the danger or, or stay looking at your friend who's learning in the other car or, or don't look at the, the deals that Maccas has on or, the, or the, the price of fuel at the moment. Keep your eyes on the road. Who's, who else has just got yelled that as a kid? No one else? All right, all right. You're sitting next to your parent. Don't actually nod that heavily, okay? Uh, but, but, but this is what they teach you. What you look at is what you'll drive towards. I remember how many times I tried to prove my parents wrong with that. You know what? I'm going to stay front. This is after I got my P's. I'm going to stay front and center on the road, and I'm going to look intentionally somewhere else. I'm, I'm just that arrogant, if you haven't picked that up already. And, and every time, none of my crashes happen from this, but every time you, you just discover you're, you're in the other lane, you're starting to veer, and this is what John is telling us. If you want holiness, don't look within day after day. You know what you'll find? Unholiness. You know what you'll stare at? Unholiness. You know what you will bring more out? Unholiness. You become your own frame of reference where, where you're running on a treadmill, moving nowhere. But friends, if you look and behold Jesus, looking to him, not even in the, in the thought process at the moment necessarily of how do I get holy? Just just look at Jesus. Understand the atonement. Dwell and bask in the glory of what he did on the cross. Whether you know it and like it or not, you'll be further, closer to his likeness. You'll be drawn into him. You will be staying on course because that is the key to Christianity. So friends, we've seen a perfect, finished righteousness. And we've seen our unfinished, imperfect righteousness. We saw... How, how the false teachers jettison both of them. If Jesus isn't in the flesh, he can't be a wrath-satisfying atonement. So you don't, can't, you don't have forgiveness. Or they go the other way and say, we're not sinful. Fine, you don't have the grace of God in Jesus Christ or heaven afterwards because you don't have sin. He's only the savior of sinners. But us Christians, we own both. Jesus came in the flesh and died for sin. I am a needy sinner. And if I believe that, he will bring the holiness of God himself in and through my life. We rest in him and we walk in him. We rest on his finished work. We walk in our work. We rest on his perfect obedience. We walk in our imperfect obedience. Friends, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, propitiation, Lord, and advocate tonight, then I, may I plead with you, 
to ask the Lord for a heart that believes and rests on Jesus' finished obedience. That's something that can be given right now. If I was telling you that God requires of you commandments and obedience and a good track record, you'd need at least a week. You'd need some time. You can't be saved tonight. But what I offer to you is immediate salvation because it is all done. It is all finished. It is all done for us in Jesus Christ, the righteous, our advocate. Can you stand? I'm going to pray over us as we finish. Father God, we, we come with unspeakable thanks and gratitude. And Lord, there, there, there are some here who, who assume, even after looking at all of this about Jesus, they just assume that these words have been spoken to better Christians than them, to less sinful people than them. Lord, only your spirit can take the truth of the, the atonement of Jesus, the truth of the salvation of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, and drive it into the hearts of everyone who needs to hear it tonight. Lord, the, the most hypocritical Christian the most self-righteous jerk, the most lost, rebellious sinner who, who is not believing in Jesus, any single one tonight, the news is the same. Whether you, we are saved or we are lost, we need to trust in Jesus who is the salvation of sinners. Father God, would you give us hearts that believe that? Would you give us lives that reflect that? Would you give us joy that proclaims that to others? Lord, may you build your kingdom through us, bringing more souls saved by the blood of Jesus so that at the end of the world, at the end of time, Lord, you might receive the great glory which you are worthy of, the glory that is being sung and praised from every tongue that exists. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.